Well, welcome to Two Cities Church Online. I'm Kyle Mercer, one of the pastors here, and you just got to hear from one of our church planners, Logan Dagley. If you're new and, and tuning in for the first time, here's what I want you to know. Uh, we love pastors, we love church planners, and we've come alongside a lot of them. Logan's just one of them. In Brooklyn, New York, uh, he and his wife and their four young children are, are in a shelter-in-place situation there, and they just moved there in this last year, and God is doing some incredible work through them. And thanks to you, we're able to come alongside side of them and be a generous church to them. It's not just them as well. It's churches like uh, the Grove Church in Asheville with Lance Michaels. Now, you may not know this, uh, but we've been coming alongside them, and they're in a unique season because Asheville is a touristy city, and they were renting space. And so here's what's happening with a lot of churches, and I want you to know about this. There are a lot of churches that do not have a permanent location like we do. Remember, we, we had a season when we didn't have a permanent location. But there are a lot of churches that don't have a permanent location. And one of their concerns is on the other side of all of this, on the other side of the new normal, are they going to be able to go back to the YMCA? Are they going to be able to go back to the schools? And we're not sure. And here's what we're going to do. We're praying with them. We're walking alongside them. We're going to coach them. We're going to help them. Thank you for your generosity. Uh, every time you give, you help fuel and fund the local, the national, and the global mission of our church and of the church. And, and let me just tell you this. You, you may have heard this before. For, but uh, I really believe this, that the leaders, the staff, the pastors, we set the direction for the church, but it's you, the congregation, that are able to set the pace. And every time you give, you don't give to us more than that. You really give through us, and you help us to fuel and fund all ministries. So thank you so much. And I want to particularly thank you on this Mother's Day weekend. I mean, here we are. It's Mother's Day weekend, the first Mother's Day where we're unable to gather as a church. And let me just say to the moms, thank you. Uh, everybody, you know, loves their mother. Everybody is grateful for their mom. Um, you, we all know how hard moms are working, especially in this season. Many of you are home educating for the first time. Your kids are home more than ever. You're, you're eating out less. You're cooking more meals in. And, and just want to say thank you. You know, I don't know if you know this. But, uh, for example, Abe Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, one of the presidents, he said most of his success he credited to his mom. You have no idea, moms, the influence and the impact that you are having. I've heard it said this way. Maybe the greatest thing for many of us that we will accomplish in our life, it will not be something we do. More than that, it will be somebody that we raise. So I just want to say thank you. We, now, and those of us, by the way, who who get married and we have kids. And, uh, you know, I think about myself, I've got three young kids and, and whenever, and it doesn't get to happen much, but whenever Margie leaves town and I'm with the three kids, uh, I am, I'm immediately aware, and, and I try to be a pretty, you know, present dad already, but I'm, I'm immediately aware of how much she does, you're right? Because as soon as she leaves, I'm like, all right, guys, we're ordering pizza, bedtime, 4 p.m., okay? That's, that's what it can often feel like, right? And so we are incredibly grateful to moms. Let me say this as well. I, I understand, I know this as a, as a pastor, um, just as a Christian, I know that Mother's Day for many is a painful day. It is a difficult day. It is a day to be reminded of unmet longings. Uh, I was talking to a young lady recently in our church, very godly young lady, and she said to me recently, she said, uh, at my age, I thought I would be at a different stage of life. That there are certain things that I had hoped happen, and we all play this game, right? We all play the numbers game. I thought that by this age, I would be, and I would have, and I would have kids. And, and, and I know that many of you, you struggle to get pregnant. You struggle to stay pregnant. I know that for others of you, Mother's Day is a reminder of a mom that you no longer have, who's no longer here. And, and for some of you have, have maybe older, your mom's older, or your, your, your mom um, is more vulnerable health-wise. This might be the first, she might be alive still, but this might be the first Mother's Day you're not able to be with her. Let me just say this, that where the ideal is lacking, the grace of God is abounding in people's lives. And um, 
And then finally, let me say one last thing as we, as we, before we head into the message today. I want to just tell you about, and you've heard about it a little bit earlier in this broadcast, I want to I tell you just for a moment about our Weekender. Because we are doing our first digital online Weekender, May 28th and May 29th. It's going to be the easiest Weekender for you to ever attend. You can attend it in your pajamas if you want to. That's how easy it's going to be. And we're doing it because the Weekender is such a critical key and crucial component of who we are. We are a church that wants to deeply connect with you and connect you to our church. And so do not go into this summer without being meaningfully connected to a church. If if you're able to join us on May 28th and May 29th to take your next step, our staff are going to be there. We're going to do all this over Zoom. It's going to be an incredible time together. We're going to take our next step together to get more connected, more committed to the vision, the values, and the vehicles of our church. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to dive into the book of Galatians. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you for our partners in ministry all over the globe, especially in Brooklyn, New York, and in Asheville. Lord, alongside that, Lord, we pray for moms. We thank you for all the hard work that moms are doing, that they've always done, but they're especially doing in this season. Um, Lord, and we pray for people who need to take their next step into deeper discipleship, uh, that, that to not just be connected uh, from a distance, but to be deeply connected to a church. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, if, if you are, have been with us, we've been in the book of Galatians. And if you'll turn to Galatians chapter 4, we're going to finish Galatians chapter 4, which next week we'll pick up in Galatians 5, and we'll get all the way through. There's six chapters in this book. But let me just catch everybody up just for a minute. Here's what's been happening in the book of Galatians. You got this guy named Paul, and what he does is he plants and he pastors a church. What we found out last week in Galatians 4 verse 13, you can look there now if you want to, it says that Paul preached the gospel to the Galatians because of a bodily ailment. Now listen to this. This is interesting. Um, It was because of a health crisis. Literally, it was because Paul had a personal health crisis that it catapulted and ended up being a catalyst for more and different ministry than he was thinking. Now, is that not true in our, in our life right now? It's like because of a health crisis in our nation uh, that the church and Christians are having a unique opportunity for different and more ministry. As we've transitioned everything online, that's different than what we thought. But what we're seeing, not just our church, but many churches, almost all churches, are seeing the reach of their ministries deeper into people's lives. And people are tuning in and watching and hearing the gospel and responding like never before. And so what happened was Paul, Paul went in, he, he planted this church, but then Paul would, he traveled a lot. You know, they say, he, I think he, he uh, traveled something like 15,000 miles in his lifetime. He would travel, he would plant, he would pastor, he'd write letters. And, and when he was gone, false teachers would come in. And so part of what you need to understand is Paul's writing this letter because he cares and he's concerned for the church of Galatia and that there had been false teachers that came in. Now this always happens. In fact, there, there are three ways, just so you know, and we've talked about this before, but there are three ways the church has been attacked and is attacked in every generation. It's attacked through worldliness, right? And that's a big struggle in America. That we tend to love the value systems of the world instead of the people of the world. Uh, and that, that we, we lose our distinction and difference from the world because we're just like the world and we're in love with the things of the world. So that, that makes the church ineffective and unattractive, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing often is persecution. We don't experience that as much. Uh, but that's oh, all over the world. There are churches that aren't struggling with worldliness, but they are being persecuted. But then the third thing is false teaching, right? And false teaching is a big deal in the Bible, in the New Testament. Paul's always talking about it. There are false teachers in the church, right? And there are false teachers outside the church. For example, think about Oprah. You know, Oprah is a false teacher, not trying to pick on her, but she is and has been and was uh, the high priestess of the land of America for a long time, right? What would, what would someone do if they sinned? Well, they would go on her show and they would confess her sin, their sins to her and she would forgive them in front of the whole world. 
And many people look to her for spiritual guidance, and she basically tells everybody they are okay. They need to love themselves, accept themselves. They're fine as they are. That's a form of false teaching. There are also false forms of Christianity. Just so you know, everything that says Christian isn't Christian. And part of our heart and part of our desire as a church is that if you were to reject Christianity, you would reject the real thing. Now, we don't want you to reject Christ. We want you to receive Christ. We want you to follow Christ. But we don't want you to reject Christianity. You may be rejecting moralism. You may be rejecting religion. You may have never really understood, fully uh, comprehended the true Christian faith to ask, do I really want to receive this or do I want to reject that? So with that said, here's what I want us to do. I want us to look today. We're going to pick back up. I told you this last week. We're going to pick back up in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. So if you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, here's what Paul says. Galatians 4. Verse 19, he says this, my little children, my little children. That's the only time in the Bible where the apostle Paul uses that phrase. Uh, the apostle John, he, he was a real kind of heart, heartwarming guy. And he would often, uh, particularly in 1 John, he would love to write that phrase all the time. My little children, my dearest children. Uh, Paul never uses that phrase except for right here. It's a very affectionate phrase. He says this, my little children for whom I am again, ministry's never over. Right? People are always struggling. There are always needs to meet. He says, uh, for I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here's the first thing Paul wants us to know, that ministry is like being a mom. Ministry is like being a mom. I, I don't know if Paul wrote this letter on Mother's Day or this section of the letter on Mother's Day, because he's got, I, I wasn't even planning on this when I was originally preparing, because our schedules, uh, the preaching schedule and the, and the teaching through this, the Bible schedule, had, has gotten rearranged through all of this crisis and pandemic. So I didn't even know that today we would be in a portion of Scripture where Paul would, uh, but this is why God's Word is timeless and so always timely, that we would be in a portion of Scripture where Paul would talk about himself, one of only two times in the whole Bible, where Paul talks about himself as a mom. Now, it's very common. Paul will talk about being a spiritual father. Here, he talks about being a spiritual mother. And what Paul says is, hey, I, ministry is like being in the pains of childbirth, okay? Now, um, I have three kids. I talk about them a lot. And, uh, and I was, uh, for th- three different times, I was at their birth, okay? When, when my wife, Margie, when she was in the pains of childbirth, okay? The, uh, three different times, I went to the hospital with her, and, and she delivered. And, and all three of those times, when she was in the pain of childbirth, it was the three scariest moments of my life, okay? <laughs> um, you know, we decided to do natural childbirth. I, I made her do that. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Some of you are like, no, 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 I'm just kidding, I'm completely kidding. Uh, she wanted to do that. We, we, we decided that together, but she, so natural childbirth, just hear me for a second. Three different times, um, she had all three of our kids, natural childbirth. It was incredibly painful. In fact, you know, childbirth is so painful that they bring in the legal drug dealer, right? Usually, hey, what do you need? Do you need Pitocin? Do you need epidural? What do you need? Because it's an incredibly painful experience. What, what it's saying is that it's very, very painful to bring new life into this world physically. It's very, very painful to bring new life into this world spiritually. And, and a question to ask oftentimes is, you know, this is a fair question to ask for any woman who's ever had just one child and decides to have a second is why would you ever have, it's, it's a legitimate question, it's actually a question people ask sometimes, why would you ever have a second child if the first child is so painful? Well, there are multiple reasons for that, right? Some people say, well, you know, the reason you do that is because um, they, they forget how painful it was. Well, well, maybe, but if you talk to most women, that's not the case, right? Women talk about childbirth the way men talk about war, right? <laughs> well, it was painful. I didn't know if I was going to make it. I've got a scar. I mean, is it men talking about war? Or is it women talking about childbirth, okay? E- either way, people, are, women do not forget the pain of it. Here's what, here's what they realize, that it's worth it. That the pain of childbirth, as painful as it is, is worth the blessing of seeing new life. 
And here's just a question to ask yourself, because Paul uses this illustration, is um, are you willing to experience pain so that others can experience life? Are you willing to experience pain so that others can experience life? And it, for most of us, it's not going to be literally as painful as childbirth, but it might be the pain of inconveniencing ourselves, it, it, right? It might be the pain of being willing to build a relationship with our neighbor that um, means that I have to do things when I don't necessarily want to, that I have to uh, be able to put up with often maybe awkward conversations as I'm trying to move the, the conversation from casual to meaningful conversation, to a spiritual conversation. And see what Paul says is, if you look back to verse 19, I want you to see this. Here's what Paul says. He says, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Here's what he's saying. There's there's two sections of scripture where Paul calls refers to himself as a spiritual mother. This is the first section where he says, I want to see Christ formed in you. And then I want you to show you the other section. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, here's what Paul says. But we were gentle among you. So the first illustration was that about, about the pains of childbirth. He says, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. This is the second only other place where Paul talks about himself as mother. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. What, he, what he's saying is ministry is like being a mom and there's the pain of childbirth and there's the difficulty of raising young children, right? And, you know, what's more difficult? How, you know, giving birth or raising all, all of the children that you have? It's like, well, they're both difficult. You know, I heard one author, he said, when, when kids are little, they step on your toes and when they get older, they step on your heart. And, and what he's talking about, see, what he says in verse uh, 19 is that he wants to see Christ formed in them. See, this is the goal of every mom or you know, every dad or every parent is that what they want to see is they want to see their child mature. This is why it's been said, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, this is why they say the good mother necessarily fails. The good mother necessarily fails because what she does is she gets her children ready to not need her in the same way anymore. That, that, that the unhealthy mother is the mother who tries to keep their children so that they don't ever mature, so that they live in you know, her basement for the rest of their life, so that they need her to take care of them all the time. That's not the good mother. In, in the Bible, the spiritual dad, the spiritual mom want to see the spiritual children mature. This is what we want, right? And there's, and there's phases to maturity, right? We, and I learned this when I was in ministry, college ministry. We talked about there's the dependent stage. Uh, that's, the, that's where Paul says they were like, you know, I was like a nursing mother. It's like, well, when children are young, they are very dependent. Right? Until a child is five years old, he or she is a full-time job for somebody. You can figure out how that will work, but a child is a full-time job for somebody until they're about five years old. So they become very, very dependent. Early on, spiritually, we are very, very dependent. And then what tends to happen, right? You know, we don't know how to read our Bibles. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to repent of sin. We don't know how to share our faith. We're very needy. Then what often happens is we move into what I call the middle school years. And you'll see this with people. They'll move from dependence to independence. They think they're smarter than you. They don't think they need the church. Uh, they found the best blog, the best conference, the best book. They know how to date. You know, they, 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 they know how to handle their money. And then they, what tends to happen is people make a ton of mistakes. People bump their heads a couple times. And then they get to the healthy place of interdependence. Right? There's, there's, there's dependence, which isn't healthy long-term. There's independence, which isn't the way God wants us to, to live. And then there's healthy interdependence, which is we are all needed and needy. And so, so Paul says, I want to see Christ formed in you. Now, this is the language of sanctification, right? Sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of every Christian believer. That's what sanctification is. Paul calls it in verse 19, being formed, having Christ formed in you. And I want to take a moment 
and talk about this because here's my concern. And part of what I'm always trying to do is look at the culture and look at the church and understand where we are and, and how the scripture is speaking to us in this moment. And, and here's what I see. I see that um, not just in our church, but in the church, there's a lot of excitement about the doctrine of justification. Justification just says, I'm legally declared right before God because of what Christ has done. I'm forgiven. That's justification. There's a lot of excitement about that. There's a lot of excitement about mission or generosity, or gospel-centeredness, or even the doctrine of glorification. Glorification is just being uh, you know, sinless and perfect and complete when we die in Christ in heaven forever. But what often isn't talked about, what nobody's often excited about, what I don't hear a lot of particularly young Christians talking about, is the doctrine of sanctification, which is, well, it's your whole Christian life on earth. It's, it's the continual being separated from sin and the distinction between you and Jesus Christ lessening over your life. That uh, across your life, you become the godliest version of yourself. That you are asking the question more and more and more, um, what would Jesus do? And what would it look like if Jesus was living my life? How could I do that? That's, that's the idea of Christ being formed in us. Now let me ask you this question just real personally. What are you doing right now in this season to have Christ formed in you? You know, it's, the, it's the, what Christians have always called, it's the means of grace, right? You're reading your Bible, you're praying, maybe you're journaling, maybe you're taking time to confess sin and repent. Maybe you're reading the Gospels more so you see who Christ is. Like I, I was on a phone with um, someone from our church this last week and this, I was so encouraged by talking to this guy because he was, he was, we were talking about you know, what it had been like for him to be at home and he was certainly being honest about it and it even actually had affected him negatively financially and, and that was not good for him. But, but overall, he said, he was telling me, he said, Kyle, I am just so excited about what God's doing in my life. And, and my life has slowed down and my relationship with my kids are better than it's ever been and I'm reading my Bible more and, and there's just a lot of extra stuff and busyness in my life that wasn't there and I was watching too much sports and, and he said, I just, I feel like the most spiritually healthy version of myself in this season. And I just, I left that conversation so encouraged for that to be what the Lord would do in my life as well. So this is what Paul's talking about. He says, I desire to see Christ formed in you. And here's the truth. You are becoming some type of person, right? When I was a senior in college, uh, there was a phrase I read in a book, and I wrote it down. I remember writing this down on a note card. This is before the iPhone. I wrote it down on a note card. And there was a verse I read, or, or I mean, a quote I read in a book, and it said this, you will one day be what you are now becoming. And I don't, it's a very simple phrase, but that always hit me because what it's basically saying is that you are becoming a type of person. Like, I, you've seen this before. If you've ever looked at somebody and their whole life fell apart and they made all these terrible decisions and they got to a place where they shouldn't have been and you go, how did you get there? Well, we know the answer to that. One step at a time, one decision at a time. That you are, and so many people, you'll see this as well. The older you get, the more you may, if you're not careful, you may uh, turn into the worst version of yourself. It's not uncommon for me to, to meet with people and in counseling sessions for them to tell me that they feel like they're becoming just like their mother in the most unhealthy ways. Or they're becoming just like their father in the most unhealthy ways. Let me encourage you, because of the gospel, because of the grace of God, uh, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be formed into the image of Christ. You can become the godliest version of yourself by the grace of God. That's the first thing Paul wants us to know. And then he says, he warns us on the second thing that I want us to see starting in verse 21. If you look at verse 21, here's what Paul says. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Here's the second big idea Paul wants us to understand. The law is not something to live under. And I wanna talk about this for a while as well. 
It's something I'm very, very passionate about because Paul's almost done talking about the law. He has spent an enormous amount of time talking about uh, what is it, you know, we won't revisit it. What are the purposes of law? What, is, what should you do? What shouldn't you do? Here, here's what I want you to understand. I, I want you to understand what legalism is, right? Because there are, there are two wrong ways to relate to God. There's legalism, which is the excessive and improper use of the law. That's called legalism. Um, and then there is license, and it's, I don't need the law, I'll live however I want. Those are the two ways people rebel against God. <laughs> they either try to obey the law, and that's very, very prideful, or they, they think they don't need the law at all, and they run from it, and that's very, very prideful. Uh, we, we, another way we say it, it's, it's religion or it's rebellion. Okay, those are the two different ways. But I want to talk about legalism for a little bit, because I want to say what legalism, I want to be very, very clear, because we can throw the word legalism out. I want to be very, very clear what legalism is not and what legalism is. Let me just tell you this. Legalism is not having standards for your life, right? What, what happens is, oftentimes, if people are obeying God in areas where we're not, we call them legalists. Well, they're you know, so legalistic of them. You know, oh, they're so legalistic. They read their Bible, and they pray, and they share their faith, and they repent of sin. Glad I'm not legalistic. It's like, well, actually, maybe they're just obedient. And it's not, there's nothing wrong with having biblical convictions. There's nothing wrong with saying to your life, there's a way I ought to live. That's not a bad thing. Um, Legalism is when I try to either attain salvation by the law or I maintain salvation by the law or I use the law to judge other people and think I'm better than them. That's the three ways legalism is used in the Bible. Either I'm trying to attain salvation by the law, I'm trying to maintain my salvation by the law, or I'm using the law to judgmentally talk about the areas I'm obeying it and other people aren't. And let me just say this, we're, we're still a very young church, less than four years old. Um, we want to fight against both license and legalism. Here's what happens in a legalistic church. And some of you, this is your story. You were in a legalistic church for a season. Here's a legalistic church. Um, The leaders of the church are trying to be the Holy Spirit in your life. And they are trying to tell you what to do where scripture is not clear. Here's what happens in a legalistic church. Uh, People are always peering into your life. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of punishing. And in a legalistic church, here's, here's how you know you're in a legalistic church, it leads to hypocrisy and hiding. Because nobody can do it, there's way too many rules, Everybody, everything's external, nothing's about internal transformation, there's no grace, there's no love. So, so in a legalistic church, it's hypocritical and it's hiding. When, when the church is full of grace and love, there's a lot of, hey, I want to be humble, <laughs> I want to be honest, I need a lot of help. Here's also what happens. In a legalistic church, um, people will often take neutral things and they will make them necessary things. There are a lot of things in the Bible that, that, that there is freedom among Christians. This is Romans 14 and other places. That, it, that there are, Christians can come to different decisions and those are considered neutral things. But in, in the legalistic church, they will say these neutral things become necessary in your life. And so we want to avoid that. And this is where I want to go to Tim Keller for a second. And I know we're kind of slowing down. And, and the, what I'm about to tell you it should be on the screen um, below me as well. But I want to tell you, Tim Keller very helpfully talks about four different ways that people relate to the law. And it's really, really helpful because you, you, for you, it's not going to be probably one. It's probably going to be several of these as I, as I say them. But I want to slow down. I want to tell you them. Uh, the first way he says people think about the law is they are law-relying, law-obeying. They are law-obeying, law-relying. Here's what he means by that. He means that this is the religious person. This is the person who obeys the law, or at least they think they do. They rely on the law. So what happens if you obey the law and you rely on the law? You become self-righteous. You think you're superior. You feel better than other people. 
You tend to judge others. What tends to happen is you tend to choose certain areas in which you're pretty good at obeying. You obey in those areas. They tend to be mostly external, and then you look down to others who can't do it. You know, I've got, and, and you, most of us probably have, you know, those of us who have kids, we, one of our kids tends to be maybe a little bit more self-righteous than the other, and, and, and all my kids, you know, and all of us can struggle with this to a certain extent, but I was thinking about my middle son, or my oldest son, my middle child, William. What will often happen is one of my other kids will be disobeying in a certain area, and this will be at dinner time usually, or, well, it happens all the time, but it can be at dinner time. Um, they'll be disobeying, and then, and then uh, we'll correct the one child, and then William, he'll say, now, I wasn't doing that, was I, Dad? I, I never do that, do I, Dad? And uh, we've started to say to him, hopefully in a loving way, we said, William, you're actually being self-righteous right now. You actually are trying to think you're better than them. And I mean, we've said this to him once or twice, and, and, uh, and th- recently we said, William, you're being self-righteous. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, aren't we all a little self-righteous? And, uh, and I said, you're right, you're right. We're all, this is a temptation for all of us. Um, so the first is to be law-obeying, law relying. The second is to be law disobeying, law relying. Law disobeying, law relying. And and here's what that means. When you're law disobeying, law relying, um, you are looking to the law for your worth. You are looking to the law for your value. You are looking to the law for how you relate to God, but you are so aware of how you are failing, right? So this leads to guilt, anxiety, shame, depression, uh, This tends to be people who are very introspective, right? If you're a six on the Enneagram, this is going to be your temptation to have a standard and realize you're failing it and to beat yourself up over it, which leads to the third thing, that you are law disobeying and not law relying. You are law disobeying, you're not law relying. This is the world, this is the culture, this is the non-Christian. And they feel, and it leads to a different type of pride. I don't need to obey the law. I am a law unto myself. All ideas, all perspectives, all lifestyles are the same, are equal. Now, most Christians aren't going to go that far and say that they are in that place. Which leads to the fourth thing, and this is the sweet spot, that we are law obeying, but we are not law relying. That's the tension of the Christian life. That I want to obey the law Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because I love God and the law is a reflection of who he is. Because I want to be like Jesus, because Jesus is being more formed in me. So I know I'm never going to be able to perfectly obey the law, but he perfectly obeyed the law. And I want to be like my great older brother, Jesus Christ. And so what, what Paul is saying here is that we do not want to live under the law. That's verse 21. He said that, and then he's going to tell us a story. Which leads to the third thing I want us to see. Which again, Paul says this, and this is kind of the big idea here, that everyone has a spiritual mom. Everyone has a spiritual mom. You'll see what I mean in this text. He's going to tell a story because sometimes we need a story to understand things. And I want to read you this story. This is the most, scholars, commentators (laughs) agree, this is the most difficult portion uh, of scripture in the book of Galatians. Um, Look at me, here's what it says. Verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, that's going to be Isaac and Ishmael. By the way, it's interesting that Paul, um, he assumes that the people know their Bibles very, very well because he's going to talk about a lot of of things from the Old Testament. And these are new Gentile believers, but he believes they know their Old Testament very well. How, how, How well do you know your Old Testament? Here's what he says. He says this, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, that would be Hagar, and one by a free woman. So he says there's two sons and there's two moms. And then he says this, verse 23, but the son of the slave was born according to the flesh while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. 
One is from Mount Sinai, that was where the law was from. Bearing children of, for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. You're like, Kyle, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> We're gonna take a few minutes to look at it. This is the most difficult portion of, of the whole book of Galatians to kind of understand and interpret. Let me give you the clear, simple big idea here. What Paul's going to say is he's going to say, listen, you haven't thought about what it means to live under the law. And he points back to a very, very familiar story about Abraham. And let me just take a minute and tell you the story. Cause if you're new, or maybe even if you've been around for a while, you may not know this story, but there was, there's a guy in the, uh, what's considered kind of the dad of Israel, the father of our faith, a guy named Abraham. He's married to a woman named Sarah. They're both old. God comes to them. This is in the book of Genesis says, I want you to trust me. I want you to believe that I'm going to give you a miracle child. It's going to be completely by faith and by faith alone. And in the moment, they believe God. It's counted to them as righteousness. And, uh, and they begin to live by faith. But living by faith is hard and it's difficult. And, and, and God seems to be in, in the mind of Abraham and Sarah taking a while. And so they decide to do things by the law or by works or by the flesh. Same thing, law, works, flesh, same thing. And they decide together, well, it ends up being Sarah's idea, but Abraham agrees to it. And by the way, when I tell you this, you're gonna go, and I thought my family was dysfunctional, okay? Uh, here's what happens. Um, Sarah says, why don't you sleep with my slave, Hagar? Then you'll have a son, it will work, you can make it happen. It won't be by, uh, it won't be by promise, it'll be by performance. It won't be by trusting, it'll be by trying. It won't be by faith, it'll be by you figuring it out. And, and what happens is, it works, kind of. Which is how the law, it's like, you feel like it's working for a second. So what happens is, um, Abraham uh, and Hagar, uh, they come together, they have a child, and everything gets worse. You know, it's like, you, you try to do it for yourself, you think it's working for a season, it only makes things worse. Which is why, look what he says at the very end here. He, he gives this idea, and then he says in verse 26, uh, verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. In other words, you don't want to choose that way of life. It leads to slavery. It leads to bondage. It leads back to the law. It leads to your inability to do it, and it only makes you more miserable in the long term. And then he says this, but the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. This is the third time the idea of a mom comes in. He basically says this. He says, don't forget who you came from. Sarah's ultimately your mother. You're a children of promise. Don't forget to where you're going. The, the, the new Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, that's heaven, that she's your mother. This is, a, this is a reference to your mother's city. Your mother's city in that day was the city uh, that you were from, your city of origin, where your citizenship was where your rights came from. What he's saying is you are headed to heaven. God is your father. The church is your family. You, you, don't, you don't have to and you can't earn your citizenship. It's freely given to you, which leads to the last and final and most hopeful part of all of this, which is I want you to see what happens in verse 27. He says this, for it is written, rejoice, O barren one. The Bible is a very strange book. Rejoice, O barren person. That's what it says. It says, rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Final big idea that Paul wants us to understand. Even though that, that last text can be confusing, here's the big idea. The gospel is for the barren and the broken. 
The gospel is for the barren and the broken. And we, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, and, and this is why God's word is so timely. This is a great thing to talk about on Mother's Day. Um, because we talked about this earlier in the message. Um, but this idea of barrenness, this idea of being infertile, um, you have to understand it, it is a big deal today, very big deal today still. Uh, the average woman over 30 years old, uh, one out of three women over 30 who want to get pregnant cannot get pregnant after a year. So infertility is still a heartbreaking issue. Often people uh, suffer silently in it. There are other women who maybe they were able to have one kid and they'd like to have more kids and they are unable and they feel, a, they feel that same type of barrenness and infertility. And, and this was a especially big deal back then. It's a big deal today too. But it was especially a big deal back then because for a woman back then, there was no plan B. There was no, you know, get a career. Uh, th this was the primary only way that perceived from the culture, not the Bible, but from the culture, it was the only perceived way that a woman and a, 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 a wife brought value to the family or to the society. And so, you know, if you're in a place of being barren, it, you, you feel completely helpless and hopeless. You know, and it's an interesting moment for us to talk about this just in light of where we are as a nation right now, in light of the COVID-19 crisis. I think for some of us, for the first time uh, in our lives, maybe we feel unable to do something. You know, it's like, you know, you are, I'm guessing, not going to uh, be able to find the vaccine for this disease. So you're not going to be able to do it, you know? You're not going to be able to fix the global economy, right? You, you just feel like there's a lot of things going on around me. I'm not in control. I can't change it. Now, here's what's amazing. Here's what the amazing gospel message is. I want you to look back one more time. I want you to see this arise right out of scripture. I want you to see verse 27. It says this, rejoice, O barren one. What, this is what makes Christianity the most inclusive and exclusive message ever. It's the most inclusive message ever because here's what it says you should do. You should rejoice in your spiritual bankruptcy, brokenness, and barrenness. It's the only religion on earth that says you should rejoice in those things because God has made a way. You should not try to rationalize them and go, I'm not that bad, I can do it, just give me a couple laws, give me a couple rules, give me a couple you know, rituals, give me some church attendance, I'll go to community group, whatever I need to do. It's like, no, what, 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 do you, what they're saying here is we need to actually rejoice in our complete inability to bring anything to our salvation except for our sin. And he says, if you will rejoice in that, God, if you will stop trying, and start trusting. If you will stop trying to perform for God and instead believe the promises of God. If you will stop trying to figure everything out yourself and put your faith ultimately in God, that you would transfer trust from yourself to God. We see that Jesus Christ has made a way for us. What Jesus Christ did in his life, and I want you to understand this, this is the passion of our church, that what Jesus Christ did was he obeyed for you. He saw your barrenness, he saw your brokenness, and that's why he came to earth. That what he did on the cross is he said, I will be barren and I will be broken and I will receive the punishment of God for you. And in his resurrection, he welcomes us to repent and to believe the gospel. So I want you to see the encouraging word at the end of this message. Look at me at verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, in other words, you're children of Sarah, not children of Hagar. You are children of promise, not children of performance. That's the gospel. We're children of promise. 
But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. This is very interesting. He says that the gospel is going to be offensive. We know it's offensive uh, to the world. He says it's also offensive to religious people because it says there's nothing you can do to be good enough. It's also offensive to those who are trying to obey the law and think they can obey the law, which is why he ends with this, verse 30. But what does scripture say Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Verse 30 again says this, cast out the slave woman and her son. Here's what that means. That for you to receive Christ, you need to reject other things. You need to reject trying to save yourself. You need to reject trying to obey the law in your own strength. You need to reject trying to change yourself by yourself. If you are listening right now and and you would say, I'm not a Christian, but Kyle, you don't know, and this happens every once in a while. Someone will say something like, Kyle, you don't know what I've done. Because I mean, people have dark pasts. I mean, some of you, the things that you have done, you've never told anybody. I mean, God knows, but it's like you you feel so guilty. You feel so broken. You feel so barren. That's exactly the type of person God loves to save. Isn't that incredible? That's the great great hope. That's why Christianity is the most inclusive uh, religion ever because no matter what you've done, you can be saved. But it's the most exclusive religion ever in that you can only be saved through one person, Jesus Christ, and what he's done in his life and his death and his resurrection. So if you want to give your life right now, if you'd say, I'm not a believer, but I feel barren, I feel broken, I want to give my life to Christ, you can do that. And when we pray at the end, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. And for the Christian, let me just ask you this. What do you need to reject and cast out of your life so that you can have Christ more fully formed in us? The temptation in many of our lives, because we have many, many dimensions to our lives, is to allow Christ to be formed in certain areas. Uh, particularly areas maybe that other people can easily see, but maybe Christ hasn't fully been formed in your sexuality. Maybe Christ hasn't been fully formed in your finances. Maybe Christ hasn't been fully formed in your marriage, in your emotions, and in your anger. That's an area where Christ is saying, cast out trying to do this by law. Let me come in by the power of my spirit, by the grace of God. Let me walk with you in this. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to end right now by just praying together. And I want to give that person right now who's listening and who who feels it, who felt it maybe for the first time today, they feel bankrupt, they feel broken, they feel barren. Maybe it's because of something they've done. Maybe it's because of, of something that has been done to them. Oftentimes people will feel dirty because of things done to them and the gospel both forgives us and cleanses us both from the sin that we've done and the sin that's been done to us. So if that's you, I just want you to pray with me right now and just confess to the Lord that you're a sinner, that you're not a mistaker, that you don't just have accidents, but you are a sinner who needs to be saved. And then then just ask and cry out to Christ and say, would you forgive me of my sins? Come live in me and be fully formed in me. That's the prayer of every true believer is, and the great promise of scripture is Christ in you, the hope of glory. For the rest of us, for those of you who are are praying with me right now and you are a believer, where does Christ need to be fully formed in you and what do you need to reject? What bad way of thinking do you need to reject? What bad habit do you need to reject? 
Where are you not allowing Christ to be formed in you? Sometimes Christ can be formed in the areas that are visible, but not as much in the areas that nobody else sees. Some of you, Christ needs to be more deeply formed in your finances or in your sexuality or in your relationships or in the way that you relate to your spouse or your children. Lord, we thank you for the great hope. The great hope of the gospel is transformation, is that we don't have to be the same person that we were, that by the grace of God, by the spirit of God, and by the word of God, we can change. We thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.